0: Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Daniel Kane. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute.
1: Today, we're excited to be joined by Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia. Secretary Raffensperger oversaw Georgia's closely contested race in the 2020 presidential election, including a recount by hand that confirmed Joe Biden's win by fewer than 12,000 votes.
0: Secretary Raffensperger wrote the lead essay for our spring 2021 issue titled The Assault on Trusts in Our Elections. In his piece, the secretary notes that while President Trump's refusal to concede the 2020 presidential election was unprecedented in many ways, this was not the first instance of a losing candidate claiming that a major election was stolen without offering much evidence. Citing Stacey Abrams' refusal to concede the 2018 gubernatorial election in Georgia, the Secretary writes that both parties have adopted a dangerous script, whereby defeated candidates undermine the integrity of our democracy and the public's confidence in it for personal and partisan gain. To restore confidence in our election system, the Secretary urges leaders in both parties to recommit to our democracy and its institutions, to implement reforms where that is required, to abide by the outcomes their elections produce. Secretary Ravensberger, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right. So, Secretary, in the start of your piece, you note, as we've already kind of mentioned, that a lot of Americans watching the aftermath of the 2020 election thought this was something new and very concerning to see kind of a defeated president not conceding the election, threatening the transfer of power, peaceful transfer of power, and finally watching a mob storm the Capitol. These are all very new and shocking things. But at the start of your piece, you note that this gave you a, quote, unshakable sense of deja vu. So just for a first question, I wanted to ask you, why did you feel that you know what we were seeing after the 2020 election was so familiar to you? What did you What did you experience in Georgia prior to that that made you think that this was a problem long before Trump came on the scene?
2: Well, immediately after the 2018 election cycle, Stacey Abrams came up short by less than 60,000 votes against Governor Kemp, and immediately she went into that she was not going to concede. We were at war, and used all that war language, uh, very similar to what President Trump it was almost word for word. Instead of voter suppression, it was voter fraud. But really, it was two sides of the same coin. And at the end of the day, what it did is it undermined trust in the election on the Democrat side. So over 75%, actually about 82%, I believe, is the number of Democrats believe that she lost the race unfairly, that she actually won, and it was somehow stolen from her, what she called voter suppression. But years later, what came out through deposition is that she actually, her team poll tested did poll testing in 2014 on what were some buzzwords? What were emotional hooks that you can put into people? And one of those words was obviously voter suppression. And that's Mm -hmm. the the hustle that she's been running now for about seven years. So you think about that, it's really been a great money-making proposition for her. She used it for fundraising, helping other candidates, Democrat, liberal candidates in other states. But that's what we saw in fall of 2020. It was a little bit like Groundhog Day.
1: Sure. So we want to eventually get to sort of the specifics of the claims that were made by both Abram supporters and Trump supporters. But before we do that, I just wanted to ask about sort of the, one of the, I guess, the interesting things about the piece is, is the way you join those two and, and make the argument that they're two sides of the same coin, which is obviously a claim I think that both Abram supporters and Trump supporters would probably not approve of, not be big fans of, but it's the whole thrust of the essay. So I was wondering if you could give us a sense of, of why you thought it was important to present those two arguments side by side.
2: Well, because they're so similar if you really look at the tactics. At the end of the day, you have an election, you lose an honest election, it's fairly and accurately counted, and then you deny that you've lost. And then you really talk to your base and motivate them and really pull all those emotional hooks on them. And in this case of you know President Trump, it really led to disastrous results on January 6th.
0: And again, like you said, we'll get into the specific of the cases in just a bit, but I wanted to read a quote from your piece before we do that quote, the fact is that our elections are both fairer and more secure than, than they have been at any point in our history. Voter participation rates are high. And evidence of widespread fraud is exceedingly rare. And yet, thanks to irresponsible rhetoric from members of both parties, Americans are increasingly skeptical of their country's ability to hold free and fair elections. So yeah, so Secretary, this kind of gets at the idea that the left is focused a lot on voter suppression, the right is focused a lot on voter fraud. But you feel both of these kind of missed the mark that elections today are actually more fair and secure than they've been at any point in history? Tell us why you think that's the case, and why that's so important to let Americans know that.
2: Back around 2015, Secretary of State Brian Kemp, now governor, he went ahead and we began that process of doing automated voter registration through Department of Driver Services. What that did was, first of all, really gave better data because now when people move within the state or moved out of the state and we're not renew their driver's license, we get have a better way of contacting voters and knowing exactly where they live within the state. But also, it really just increased. Numbers of active registered voters because now they can register to vote when they're getting their driver's license. When they move to Georgia, turn 16, they could then you know be put on a list. And then when they turn 18, they would be registered to vote. So it was very positive for the aspect of really getting a lot more involved in the election process. We had record turnout, record registrations. So Stacey Abrams has talked about voter suppression. Yet you look at our numbers, we're now up to about 7.7, 7.8 million voters. When people talk about voter registration drives in in Georgia, it's interesting because there's really no one left to get registered. Everyone that wants to vote gets registered. So we've solved that issue. What she did also, she cast dispersions on our old electronic DRE machine through our paperless system. When I ran in 2018, I said we need to get rid of that and go with the verifiable paper ballot, which we did do. For the 2020 election cycle. She cast dispersions on the accuracy of the DRV, even though we never had any issues with it. I said we needed to update it updated if for no other reason, we need a new technology. It hadn't been updated software code wise since 2005.
1: So the piece though goes beyond sort of just debunking the claim that that suppression exists and sort of traces the origin of the suppression myth to people who were around Abrams in the last few years. So you, you talk specifically about Lauren I'm going to mispronounce this name, Gro Wargo, I think is how it's pronounced, who was the founder of the Voter Access Institute and later became Stacey Abrams' campaign manager. And she, at a certain point, admitted to talking about voter suppression as a political tool, that it mobilized voters and mobilized donors as well. So could you tell us a little bit about the history of how that sort of approach to politics was discovered by the Democrats in Georgia and the history of how it came to be sort of exposed and known to you?
2: Well, the beautiful thing about lawsuits is you put people under deposition. And then when you have to put your hand on the Bible, put the other hand up, promise to tell the truth, the whole truth. And so when she's put under deposition, they asked her, Do you have any, you know, people that have been suppressed? You know, well, I don't have, and she was just hem-hawing around. Well, can you just give us one, give us one. And she could not give one instance at all of anyone that had been suppressed. But then also what came out of it was that they poll testing back in 2014 what would be some hot button issues? And that's when they hit on that magic gem, voter suppression. And once they found that was a button, actually activate voters, get them energized, so they'll come out, probably more come out with anger that, you know, righteous indignation that I can't believe we've been suppressed. They didn't realize being suppressed, you know, all this time. It was so easy to vote in Georgia. So we just register. I didn't know. And so it was a great con game. And it worked to her credit. She ran a very, Robust campaign against Governor Kemp and only lost by less than sixty thousand
1: votes. It was a close race. I just want to quickly clarify and make sure that listeners understand the scope of this because I was shocked by this. So we know now at this point that they poll tested, right? That voter suppression as an issue right. before they started talking about it publicly. Is that right?
2: Exactly. It goes all the way back to twenty fourteen. She didn't run until twenty eighteen. So she began Amazing. her New Georgia Project in twenty sixteen voter registration. It was all based on voter suppression. And that was the narrative. But when she ran in 2018, she had a lot of other things she talked about. She was caught on tape talking about she would let non citizens vote also. Of course, she moved away from that quickly and gave great umbrage to people. Please do not take me because they'll hold that against me at some point.
0: And another interesting thing out of your piece is that the kind of strategy of a stolen election narrative that the Abrams campaign used also kind of turned into a political, legal strategy. And we'll talk about the political part of that first. But you know, in your piece that according to the Center for Responsive Politics, Fair Fight, which is one of the groups that kind of emerged out of the Abrams campaign, raised almost 90 million and spent at least 66 million during the 2019-2020 election cycle, so the most recent one. And that includes millions of dollars on the runoff elections for the Senate in Georgia, which, of course, the Democrats won both of those seats. So talk to us a little bit about how this kind of became a political strategy by the Abrams campaign.
2: Well, as soon as we entered office, we probably entered the office with my guess is five to seven lawsuits we really immediately bumped up to about 14 lawsuits. And then bit by bit, we won those cases. We have still the curling cases going on, which started originally about the DRE machines, which we don't use anymore. And then they've you know, amended the lawsuit to add the new machines. And, and now they're using all these arguments. And some of the arguments they're using are almost, look, they came right out of the Trump playbook from 2020. And so it's like they're singing off the same song sheet They just insert the word voter suppression, you know, with voter fraud, but they still talk about the inaccuracy of the machines. But we are now up to right now about 22 lawsuits. Some of those are the Trump campaign, but now we're starting to get sued with the new bill, SB 202, that was passed. I believe we're up to now six lawsuits. When you can't win
1: an election, then you go ahead and sue. And that sort of takes us, I think, to Donald Trump's 2020 election, right? So a very similar thing happened in you note in the piece, and we've already sort of alluded to this, but it became very clear to you pretty early on that they were using the exact same playbook, in many instances, citing some of the same arguments, like citing the same arguments that had been made in court by Abrams's people in 2018. So can you tell us a little bit about the arguments they used and at what point it became clear to you that there was, I mean, it was literally the playbook that had been used two years prior?
2: Well, when you look at some of the pleadings, it's actually pulled out word for word of what the Fair Fight people have used. That's what the Trump campaign used. So it's really just that same line of thought. Now they just go ahead and use that same playbook. And obviously on the right side of the aisle, they, we've been watching, and so the Trump attorneys have been watching what Stacey Abrams doing in public records. So they've been you know, really following that same model. But if you look at the end of the day, what President Trump's team was talking about, first of all, the machines were inaccurate, very similar to what we're hearing about the DRE machines that they were flipping votes, they were not counting votes, they were double voting, things like that. All of it's been disproven, but it really creates that doubt and lack of confidence. And that's really when you get down to the cross, what it's doing is destroying confidence in the election process. And that's why it's so damaging to a constitutional republic like we have, democracy, if you will. But when you destroy people's confidence in the election, that eventually people don't want to come out to vote. What's the point? They throw their arms up. Well. What well, we have to really let every voter know that the machines are accurate, the processes are accurate. The glue that holds this thing together is integrity. And it's not just my integrity. It's not the integrity of our office. It's also, we have 159 counties and every county election director, they may look left, they may look right when they go ahead and vote for themselves, but they're right down the line of making sure that they follow the process and follow the law, which is personal integrity. And that's what you need to understand. We have that at the county election office level. Obviously, we have it in our office. Obviously, we've been brave enough, perhaps dumb enough to stand up and, uh, and confront the lies in the 2020 elections. But we need to continue to make sure we stand for fair and honest elections. We make sure that we balance that constant tension you have between accessibility with security. And what holds that together, that, the glue of holding accessibility with security together is integrity you don't have integrity, you've got Venezuela, you got some other, you know, third world nation, it gets back to good old fashioned American values.
0: Yes, and I know you cite several polls in your piece, and I think you already mentioned one earlier in the conversation about how, if you look at after elections, majority of the Americans that belong to the losing party think that it wasn't free and fair. And so I think you're right that 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 trust and confidence has been eroded. So we wanted to kind of for the last part of our conversation, talk about ways we can help restore that trust ways that political parties and leaders can help do that. So first I want to ask about thing that's got a lot of attention, obviously Georgia's new voting law, you know which expands early voting, but there's been a lot of other provisions that have been criticized by Democrats and corporations such as ID requirements for absentee ballots and things like that. You know you've defended the law and said that it does as you as you said reaches that balance between accessibility and security. We just want to ask you a little bit more about your thoughts on the law, your response to kind of the criticism of it and then whether this can be the Georgia's law could be like a model for other states to to adopt and follow. Well, number one, I think the most powerful
2: aspect of SB202 is that we are moving away from signature match. Many people don't realize that we've been sued bipartisanly. We've been sued by the Democrats and we've been sued by the Republicans. So, and I ran saying, I understand that it's subjective. You do signature match, but when we move away from that and you go to driver's license number, that is very objective. There's your picture right on your driver's license. There's your driver's license number. And then we know your birthday, day, month, year. So give us your day, month, year, your birthday, and give us your driver's license number. Then we can accurately know, oh, this is Bob, this is Mary that are requesting the absentee ballot. Oh, then we'll send them the absentee ballot. Then when the absentee ballot comes in, they also then verify that again. So it's a double check to make sure we can verify who's getting that ballot. That is security in the system. But what's really interesting is it's actually being used right now in Minnesota. And the Democrats, obviously, of Minnesota love that system. And it's used in other states also. So it's really a nonpartisan, bipartisan way of making sure you can you know, have accuracy of the identity of voters you know, with objective measures. Then you go back to the Carter Center and Baker Institute. President Jimmy Carter and Secretary of State James Baker had that 2005 bipartisan commission. One of the areas that said they said the greatest potential of voter fraud is in the absentee ballot process. So well, now we're increasing the security of that system so we can have additional confidence because that's the one area that has concerned me. That's what concerned people from the Trump side. But I think it obviously it must have concerned people on the Democrat side because the Democrat party has sued us. So I think that's the number one issue. I know I've talked it to death, but I think that's really positive. We've also expanded early voting. We had before 16 days, we've expanded that now up to 17 days all 159 counties, plus we're giving all counties an additional two days of Sunday voting if they want to do that, 19 19 days. That puts us near the high end of all other states in America. Compare us to Governor Cuomo's New York state, compare us to President Biden's home state of Delaware, compare us to Connecticut. We blow them out. We we have a lot more early voting time. So that's another good thing. But we also are getting serious finally about line management. In the fall, we had really been working hard with the counties and we kept our lines in the afternoon of November, election day, under two minutes. And that's an awesome win for really, you know, having a smooth running election. But now we put into law that lines have to be less than one hour long. So they go over one hour in any precinct after that election for the next election, you're gonna have to bust that into two precincts. You're gonna have to add equipment, add poll workers. You have to come up to a solution county election official, but we're not going to tolerate long lines. And I think that's really good that we're going to have that metric in there. So that was another good one. The other thing is my libertarian friends love that we've added ranked choice voting for overseas military balloting, because what was happening, we're a runoff state. I actually, I'm the runoff king, just so you know. I was in a runoff for city council, <laughs> state house, the You're secretary of state, that, yeah. secretary of state, primary, secretary of state. Yeah, I'm used to it. I've been in four runoffs in my life. But what it really means at the end of the day, when you have a runoff, you have a majority of the voters. And so it really kind of helps you build and coalesce and build a a true governing coalition of 50 plus one. But what was happening is that our federal elections were on an eight-week runoff cycle and our state elections were on a four-week. We want the ranked choice voting. We now can ever have four weeks for everyone. It saves time. It saves hassle. Everyone's going to like it, particularly the voters Get tired of watching
1: those TV commercials. So, at the risk of sort of wading into more complex political waters, I have to ask because one of the things that was just so interesting about this new measure is that once you sort of waded through the disinformation, like you were just saying, a lot of these measures were just very common sense. They they shouldn't have been very partisan. And yet, you know, on the day we're recording this, the Senate judiciary is having a committee on the new Jim Crow in Georgia. The president of the United States referred to the measure of Jim Crow in the 21st century. The voter suppression myth was it's not just alive and well after this, but it's like fueled by it in, in a lot of ways. And so I guess it, it sort of begs the question to me, how do you use these measures to build confidence in the elections when no matter what you do, a partisan slant will always be thrown onto any measure that the legislators take and ultimately used to undermine confidence in the election?
2: Well, number one is... We were actually, the Senate reached out to us on Friday for me to give testimony before the U.S. Senate Committee on the Judiciary today about S-1. And then they pulled the rug out from us, said, no, we don't do now. Well, what I, they they not need me probably because they had their narrative that they wanted to play out for the media tonight. And that's what right. we'll see on the 6 o'clock to 11 o'clock news. But I believe at the end of the day that you really have to really strive for having a bipartisan flavor to your election reform. Sometimes you won't be able to get people on board. Sometimes it's just that they're going to vote no no matter what. But if you look at what the Baker and Carter bipartisan commission did back in 2005, they both got together and they did. They actually were very honest at the end. Here are the things we don't agree on, but here are the things we do. And that's what we have been working on: is what can we agree on so it's more of a bipartisan measure. So we did. We've done automated voter registration. We've also done early voting. We've also looked at how do we make our absentee voting more secure. And so we've looked at trying to look at what is really the fair and balanced way of looking at it. Because as the Carter Baker Institute talk about, it's that tension between accessibility and also making sure you have security. I don't believe in same-day registration. My concern of that is how are you going to do that? You could have up in Northwest Georgia, you could vote in Tennessee at 7 o'clock, Georgia at eight o'clock and over in Alabama at nine o'clock. And if you're enterprising, you just drive another couple hours and get North Carolina or go over to Mississippi. So that's the challenge with same day registration. I don't know if people would do that, but what if they did? Or what if someone lost a race closely and they said that's what they did because of same day registration, your system just can't move that quickly. And so really you want to pause and say, how would you, if you were a county election official, run an election? HR1 and S1, sad to say, they're written by politicians and lawyers. What they should have done is find out who are the best election directors. We have the, our top five. And I can't tell you who they are because number six, seven, and eight, we get the feelings hurt. But we just have some great election directors. And I know that there's actually some that lean to the left. I know who she is. She's She's been doing this for 25 years. But when she does her job, she does it in a bipartisan, nonpartisan way. We also have ones that lean to the right. And they're looking right down that line, and they're saying, how do I run an election? And so SB202 was not a perfect bill. There's a few things we could tweak, and I understand that. But by and large, it's solid legislation.
0: Secretary, I just want to ask you real quick about HR1 again. You mentioned the things about same-day registration, automatic voter registration. The Democrats at the federal level have said that that's necessary because Republicans across the country are enacting measures that are suppressing votes, as you've already mentioned. I mean, what is your response to that? Like, and also, is this an issue that should be addressed to the federal at all, since, you know, elections tend to be controlled by the state? What are your thoughts on the criticism from Democrats at the federal level?
2: Well, the Constitution is very clear that power is not federal, go back down to states. But one of the things that are very specific, and I can pull up my little Constitution here, and we can look at it, but it talks about vested in the legislature. But number two, I'm an engineer, and I'm good with numbers, but this is not high math. In Georgia, we have 7.7 million voters. And the Pew has done a study and they said the average American move every year, about 11% of Americans move every year, take 7.7 times 0.11, works out to be 850,000 voters in Georgia move every year, every year. If you have that many voters moving every year, that really means that every day, how many voters do you have moving? It's a big number. And I think it works out to probably be about whatever that number is. And that's why you want to set that out. But it also means we are right now can register 30 days before an election, but we can't take anyone off the voter rolls out 90 days minimum. So you have 60 days of movement minimum. And so look at how many voters that would be with 850,000 divided by you know six is 141,000 voters that have moved in that 60 days. Well, did they move out of precinct or within the precinct? Are they still in the same state house race, state house district, state senate, or are they moved out of the county? Did they actually move out of Georgia or did they move into Georgia? So people haven't really thought about how mobile we are. When we looked at the Help America Vote Act, probably people weren't moving around as they were as much. Plus, we didn't have a way of tracking them. But we now have that with ERIC, which is the Electronic Registration Information Center, which is a state led effort. And it also lets us objectively update our voter rolls. But right there, that's a case in point. And no one's really talking about that on either side, about how mobile American society is, and how do you keep your list accurate?
1: So I guess as we start to wrap up, towards the end of the essay, you make a call to leaders of both the Democrats and Republicans to recommit to our democracy, in your words, and its institutions, and to work together to restore public trust. So over the next few years, what steps could they take to practically sort of live up to that standard that you think would meaningfully restore trust in our elections?
2: I think that it's really at the time where we live in a very polarized time, just like we did with Bush v. Gore with the hanging chads back in 2000. I think it's now the appropriate time that we really think about forming a bipartisan commission for additional election reform. What is good practice? And let people speak into it. If you look at the United States Election Assistance Commission, many people get frustrated about that commission because it has four members. It has two Republicans and two Democrats. People say nothing ever happens. Maybe that's a good thing because that means that then they have to sit there and they got to jawbone together and they got to really work hard at what is a fair process, what can you agree agree on, have some give and take. But at the end of the day, that is probably the appropriate way of going because we live in a 50, 50 nation. These elections that we're having right now Are 50.5, 49.5. They are very close. And at the end of the day, if you really look at America, I think that the strength of America is that we truly are a consensus republic. A friend of mine said, We need to get back to the sacred center. At first, when he said it, I kind of cringed a little bit because as a Republican, what do you mean by the center? Everyone's supposed to be on this side of the aisle, my aisle, right? But what he's really saying is that in the sacred center, that's when people of goodwill common sense will sit down and talk rationally calmly to each other much as what you know president you know Jimmy Carter did with Secretary of State James Baker and they had honest discussions, tough discussions but they brought in people and then they said what can we agree on and I think we need to have that honest goodwill again and I don't know who would lead that but I think it would be appropriate now at this time for someone to really consider something like that.
0: That's an important minister, Secretary. We appreciate you joining us today. Appreciate you writing the essay for us. And thanks so much. Okay, thanks. We'll see you. If you'd like to read Secretary Ravensburger's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcasts by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.